Welcome to the podcast version of Sunday Miscellany, which differs from the radio version for rights reasons. We hope you enjoy the programme. Wherever I go in the world, I always like to look at the statues that decorate the streets of cities. They bear sturdy witness to past times, bringing to light forgotten individuals whose lives once warranted celebration in stone. If I drift away from companions while visiting a new city, I will usually be found dallying beside a monument, trying to decipher its origins and significance. During the three years I spent in Edinburgh, I often strolled down Princes Street, checking out the many memorials that stand there. The daddy of them all, of course, is the massive tribute to Sir Walter Scott, which towers above the tourists and shoppers crowding the street below. From a distance, it looks more like a Gothic cathedral than a monument to a 19th century historical novelist. Scott no longer enjoys the status he once had, and many who today pass by his image in stone must wonder why he merits homage on this scale. Edinburgh's Scott Monument has an intriguing connection with a far more modest Dublin counterpart that stands a bit forlornly on Kildare Street, outside of Leinster House, and beside the headquarters of our Department of Agriculture. I must have walked past this statue hundreds of times before I stopped to investigate its purpose. It recalls the life of William Cunningham Plunkett, a man of strong evangelical views who married into the Guinness family and served as Church of Ireland Archbishop of Dublin from 1885 until 1897. Plunkett was the grandson of the first Baron Plunkett, who in his youth had been a friend of Wolfe Tone and an opponent of the Act of Union. During his long career in politics and the law, Plunkett, a renowned orator, was one of the lawyers who prosecuted Robert Emmett in 1803, but he was also a staunch advocate for Catholic emancipation. While serving as Attorney General, he was among those who hosted Walter Scott, when he paid a month-long visit to Ireland in the summer of 1825. Scott arrived in Belfast on July the 13th, accompanied by his daughter Anne and his son-in-law and biographer John Lockhart. He made his way to Dublin via the site of the Battle of the Boyne. While in Dublin, he stayed on Stephen's Green with Scott's son, who was stationed there as an officer in a British regiment. Walter Scott visited St. Patrick's Cathedral to pay homage to Jonathan Swift and at Marsh's Library nearby he must have been amused to be shown a manuscript containing Swift's disobliging views about the Scots. Although in 1825 Scott did not yet publish under his own name it was an open secret that he was the author of the famed Waverley novels. On account of his literary renown, the Scottish writer was greeted with great enthusiasm everywhere he went, and he was awarded an honorary degree by Trinity College and the freedom of the city of Cork. His itinerary included a visit to the Irish novelist Mariah Edgeworth, whose work he admired. Edgeworth was charmed by her visitor, who she saw as the most entertaining, the noblest and the gentlest of people. The two novelists toured the lakes of Killarney together, But Scott was not impressed. In the words of a contemporary newspaper, Killarney failed to draw forth those expressions of enthusiastic pleasure excited 
by the antiquities of Glendalough and Cashel. While in Ireland, Scott bought many books about the country and was thought to be planning a novel set in Ireland, but that was never written. Wouldn't it be great to have a Scott novel about an Irish Rob Roy? Perhaps Silken Thomas, the great O'Neill, Patrick Sarsfield or Lord Edward Fitzgerald. As Scott journeyed around County Wicklow, he was Baron Plunkett's guest at his home at Old Connaught near Bray. The two spent a whole day together exploring Glendalough and St Kevin's Bed. Plunkett, who had a reputation for generous hospitality, threw a large dinner party in honour of his distinguished guest. Scott probably took little notice of a six-year-old girl who was introduced to him, but he would surely have been intrigued had he known about her subsequent history. Plunkett's granddaughter, Catherine, was a cousin of the future archbishop whose Dublin statue first attracted my attention. When she died in 1932 at Ballymacscanlan House in County Louth, she was just short of her 112th birthday. One way of looking at her life is that at the time of her death, she was the oldest person who had ever lived. Raised during the political career of Daniel O'Connell and his struggles for Catholic emancipation and the repeal of the Act of Union, Catherine Plunkett survived to see Eamon de Valera as the leader of an independent Ireland. During her long life, she was a keen gardener and landscape and botanical painter. Whenever I pass her cousin's solitary image on Kildare Street, I always call to mind that day in the summer of 1825 when a great historical novelist met the oldest person in history. both left the cafe at the same time. My daughter was driving. I was cycling. The cafe is about three kilometres from our house and still I arrived home before her. Not because I am a very fit and fast cyclist, because I certainly am not. No, I got home first thanks to something called permeability. Yawake? Permeability. I think it's a kind of buzzword in urban development. The last time I used this word was most likely in school. Permeable was something soft rocks were to water, I think. However, the permeability I speak of now relates to the creation of compact and connected neighbourhoods, to quote from my county's development plan. Permeability allows connectivity if you are on foot or on a bike. I beat my daughter home because she got stuck in a tailback while I cycled through new developments which linked through to other estates, thereby avoiding traffic and travelling more as the crow flies. I'm relatively new to cycling, something I only took up because of a diabetes diagnosis which forced me to move my lardy ass off the sofa. COVID-19 lockdowns allowed me to reacquaint myself with two-wheeled propulsion while the roads were quiet. I now get around by bike as much as I possibly can. 
and I've made it my mission to discover as many cut-throughs and laneways as I can in order to minimise the stress of right-hand turns, of roundabouts, traffic in your bike lane, or indeed no bike lane at all. This search for shortcuts has led me to retrace routes I last took years ago, before I had a car and before I could afford taxis. I've entertained my husband with tales of long-ago romance as I showed him cut-throughs that are often hidden from view and known only to locals. We found new shortcuts through new developments too. Using them, we've zigzagged our ways around hills and traffic congestion like determined explorers of new frontiers. So almost daily, we've experienced this permeability in urban planning, which prioritises cycling and walking over car use. There is one laneway, however, that is very special to me. It's an old one, a shortcut to the sea, and it also allows me to get to my mother's house on the flat. But that's not why it's special. It's special because it was nearly lost in the early 1970s. And only for the actions of a handful of local women it would have been. A developer had bought the surrounding land and was building houses. The local women, many of whom cycled daily to the shops, realised that their laneway was going to become someone's back garden and so mounted a campaign to protect this vital access. There were letters to local politicians and to the developer pleading their case. They were clear that a right-of-way had been established, but no one seemed willing to enforce it. Direct action was needed, and so their children were primed to raise the alarm if it looked like the laneway was about to be blocked off. No one expected this work to be undertaken on a late summer's evening, but that is what happened. A large digger made its way to the corner of the site to lay waste to the precious laneway. The kids raced home, and the women, only a handful of them, made their way down to confront the workmen. The developer, sensing that there might be trouble, had arrived on site too. The women stood their ground in front of the entrance to the laneway, claiming it for the community and refusing to allow the digger to proceed. The developer told the driver to go ahead. It was very tense. The driver hesitated before he got out of his cab, saying he wasn't going to drive his machine towards a group of women. The women, possibly inspired by their lid-banging sisters in Derry and in Belfast, said they would remain at the site all night if necessary. The standoff went on and darkness fell. Finally, the developer capitulated. I'm not sure if he said, you win, ladies, but win they did. The lane was saved and every time I cycle it, I am grateful to those women. And I remember how, aged about eight, I stood with the other neighbourhood kids in awe of our mothers, all housewives, standing up to the developer who arrived in his shiny, expensive car and the burly workmen. I doubt our mothers had ever heard of the word permeability, but they sure knew about it and more importantly, they knew how to protect it.
It's spring 2020 and I'm in my dressing gown half awake, pottering around, trying to ignore that lingering feeling that Sunday mornings lack the special quality they once possessed. In between making porridge, my sister Roseanne, as usual, is fiddling with her mobile phone. Look at this, she says, putting the phone up on a little stand and letting a live feed play. What is it? My eyes try to focus. It's mass, she says. I glance at the screen, intolerant and cynical, my hackles rising in spite of myself. I see the interior of an old church, empty apart from eight choristers who are spread out, half a dozen empty pews between each of them. An elderly priest in white vestments moves about on the altar. Gomani dia yiv, he says. The idea of watching doesn't appeal and at one level I tell myself I have escaped all of this mass-going routine. But then the priest's simple request, asking God to bless us, along with the drone of the male choir singing in Irish, sounding like medieval monks, draws me in like a drug and I hear Cor Hule in full voice. Then the shot on the little phone screen changes almost imperceptibly to another view of the interior of the chapel in Cooley and I see Padre Riade, his back to the camera, sitting on a plastic chair in the middle of the church playing the harmonium. Maybe that is the magic, the way the stops and counterpoint of the old-fashioned pump organ create a sound that blends its own mechanical drop and pull with the baritone quality of the men's voices. And I listen to Pather playing the harmony and then the descant chord, putting flesh and blood on the men's voices, providing a mysterious contrapuntal sound. Dienegi gordus the year a hirna illa they sing, and like magic I am lost, transported back to those masses in the seventies, when we sang the words of the Or Nahar and De Christon Shiel, when we sang the Sanctus is Neafa 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 Hu with renewed conviction. It was as if the music had breathed new life into the old prayers. And I remember my father filling his lungs, his voice aimed at the church's vaulted ceiling as if he was shooting for the heavens. I hear them still, the deep baritone of the male voices, the tremolo singing of the women, all together singing Oriada's Mass in a church far away, lifted in unison on a tide of harmony. On the screen, the male choristers ranged about Pather sing on, and then Antahardonal O'Brien speaks, his West Cork Irish a balm to my ear. On the sixth Sunday after Easter, he tells us not to forget the empty tomb that was left after the Passion and the Resurrection on Easter Sunday. Take solace and comfort from that memory as we stand at family graves to remember loved ones, he suggests. Bwala machapa gwil in ashari chriest agus e bosh chriest gwil solas le falaging, e queen of doing galair er un tuama follow. Biakshishin mar holas doing galair agus shing er hev oigena or mintra. Was it the umbilical cord of language connecting one gaeltacht with another that gripped me and kept me watching that morning in the kitchen? 
Me, along with nearly 300 others, as the number in the corner of the screen during the live feeds showed. Every Sunday during those months of the pandemic, I was captivated. As I waited for Roseanne to connect to the live feed from Cool A in West Cork, I'd listen out for the sounds of the choir under the direction of Pather on the harmonium. And I'd wait to hear what the lovely priest would say, his voice tinny through the microphone, always pithy and true. When I watched him on the altar, raising his arms, marionette-like, asking us to recall our sins, Togami Shorbaki Chunkina, I was reconnected with all of them, Mavainter Fain, and those Sundays of long ago when we had a hotline to heaven and we prayed. The 19th century has been described as the golden age of the horse. And Dublin, like other European cities, was a horse-drawn society well into the 20th century. However, as living beings, horses required large amounts of land to sustain them. So urban workhorses, although they might never leave the city during their working lives, were intimately connected to Dublin's surrounding hinterland. I find it fascinating how the city that I live in today has evolved from a city where domestic animals were integral to the fabric of day-to-day life. About four acres of farmland was required to produce the oats and hay needed to feed each workhorse in the city. Of course, only a portion of that food was absorbed by the horse's body. The rest was excreted. Horse manure is composed of solids and liquids, and it's estimated that, on average, One horse produces 14 kilograms of solids and 9 litres of urine per day. That's approximately 23 kilograms of manure per horse per day. And most of that ended up on the streets of Dublin. A quick calculation suggests that the 8,000 or so horses living in the city at the end of the 19th century produced more than 67,000 tonnes of manure per year. Add to that the excrement produced by the cows and pigs, who were at the time very much part of city life too, and we are left in no doubt as to how stinking the city must have been. It's no wonder those who could afford it were fleeing to suburbs like Pembroke and Rathmines. Horses have always enjoyed hay and oats, but in the city a cheap and nutritious food was at hand. The many distilleries and breweries dotted around the city from the 17th century onwards produced a large amount of waste in the form of mash, or spent grain as it was called. Indeed, mash from the Guinness brewery is still used in animal feed today. However, if a horse's owner were too liberal with the mash, the animal would sicken because of the alcohol which remained in the spent grain, and it was said that the meat and milk from cows and pigs fed exclusively on this mash was inferior to those fed in a more balanced diet. Hay and oats were brought in weekly by cart from the surrounding countryside and, as any freight manager will tell you today, a carrier should never go empty. 
In the 18th and early 19th century, the carts returning to the countryside transported the waste produced by the urban animals back with them and sold it as fertiliser. This resulted in what can be described as a charmed circle, an almost perfectly closed system whereby the surrounding countryside was nourished by the waste from the city and in turn produced food to nourish the city dwellers. After the Industrial Revolution, the system of recycling manure became more mechanised and sophisticated and, by 1910, there were 20 businesses registered as manure and fertiliser merchants and manufacturers in Dublin, with the main production sites based in Eastwall and Ringsend. The charmed circle had been broken. Although the role of the Dublin workhorse as a living machine began to change in the city with the electrification of the trams in the 1890s, nobody foresaw how great a transformation was just around the corner. Especially not Thomas Hutton and Sons, the largest coachmakers in Ireland. Their most prestigious commission was the Irish State Coach, still used by Queen Elizabeth today when she travels to Westminster. They also built the Dublin Lord Mayor's Coach and provided mail coaches for the Irish Post Office. In 1900, they acquired the agency for Daimler and by 1907, they had a motor showroom on Dawson Street. But then they turned down the franchise for Ford, unable to see the mass market potential of the less expensive car. By 1925, they were out of business. In 1911, there were 25 carriage builders in Dublin City, along with cartwrights and saddle, harness and whipmakers, employing hundreds of people. But their days were numbered. The age of the horse-drawn vehicle was coming to an end and horses were leaving the city. There are times when you wish you might be swallowed up by the ground on which you stand. Imagine an evening in Dublin's National Concert Hall and Cecilia Bartoli, the renowned Italian mezzo-soprano, is just opening her mouth to hit the first note in Handel's aria, Ombre My Foo, when the phone goes off in my pocket. Now, there are many ringtones I could have selected to announce an incoming call, and no doubt any of them would be annoying. However, my phone rang out with the opening guitar howls of Jimi Hendrix's version of the Star Spangled Banner, the original of which was recorded at the famous Woodstock Music Festival in 1969. I managed to leave the auditorium that evening before the house lights went up, the audience being distracted by a standing ovation. On the way home, in an attempt to salvage some face, I tried to explain to my wife that there were many links between Mr Hendrix and Mr Handel. They might be separated historically by 200-odd years, but by a rare coincidence, their London residences were separated by just one thin brick wall. I don't care, she told me, you still need to get rid of that ringtone. 
George Friedrich Handel moved into number 25 Brook Street, London, during the summer of 1723, encouraged to take up residence owing to his court appointment at the Chapel Royal. As a foreign national, Handel could not own property or enter into a long lease. However, after his British naturalisation four years later, he decided to remain on in the house. Number 25 Brook Street was in a good upper-middle-class area, close enough to the music and artistic communities of Covent Garden, but near to St James's Palace where he performed his official duties for the King. Handel conducted his business from number 25. For example, subscribers could collect their music scores as well as purchase opera tickets. However, his main professional occupation at the house was composition and rehearsal. The first floor contains the largest room and it is certain that all the rehearsals occurred within that space. I imagine the neighbours might have raised an eyebrow or two at the time, but for 36 years until his death in 1759, George Friedrich Handel composed and rehearsed at his home in Brook Street. Now this is where we need to fast forward to 1968. In that year, Jimi Hendrix's girlfriend, Cathy Etchingham, saw a notice in a London newspaper advertising an upper-floor apartment for rent in Mayfair. The address was 23 Brook Street, right next door to the famous Handel home. Jimmy approved of the location and moved in in July of 1968. He apparently liked living there and decorated the interior to suit his own taste. He installed state-of-the-art sound and music systems so that he could listen to his record collection as well as practice at high volume. The interior of the apartment has been lovingly recreated using photographs from the time. His music collection is visible in some of these images. There are albums by Bob Dylan, Ravi Shankar and a recording of Handel's Messiah. Sadly, Jimi Hendrix passed away in 1970, two years after moving to Brook Street. I am charmed by the notion of these two giants of musical history rehearsing at high volume in adjoining rooms with nothing separating them but brick, plaster and 200 years. Some time ago I attended a concert of Handel harpsichord music in that first floor room in number 25 Brook Street. The musician was a visiting German exponent of the instrument. The concert attracted only a small audience. Afterwards, I congratulated the harpsichord player, rapped with my knuckles on the party wall, and asked if she believed in musical ghosts. She told me that, funnily enough, the harpsichord mysteriously went out of tune just before the interval, but that a kind member of the audience suddenly materialised beside her, whipped a tuning implement out of his top pocket and restored the tone. All was now well, she told me, but without the mystery man, she would have had to abandon the concert. I noticed on the concert programme that the event was sponsored by the British Harpsichord Society, so the likelihood of a keyboard tuner being present, well, was none too mysterious. As you might imagine, I no longer use the star-spangled banner as the ringtone on my phone. I've replaced it with the opening bars of Handel's Ombra, My Foo. And next time I am at a concert, I promise to double-check that it is switched off before the baton is raised and the first note is struck.
Mugilamar, the Sean O'Reilly, Lashed Blin, Teresa Vosh. Castle Gormodin or Latheiv, or Hriaru, Gulagay, do the Hive Shig the Naughty Mashig of Sadakarnatanta, Agus Hogamur Kungrinish, Gala, Hyolorne, in Ushlok Thanoish, Glessig of Classic of the Narklan, Augustan of Skunorn, Idreshle Dvorjak, Agus Bartok. Erchlichulen, Dariamur Bulletoish to the Vauroin, Agus Erde the Hritkorde, Dor Daring to Stach, Egordo or Manmun. Lakhed Blien to Reish the Vosch, Er Arige Hochid, I'm Sheen or Maud Hullefort, the Hinnefofos, Eg Borra or Scholte. My gallant lad, to Sean O'Reilly on the fiftieth anniversary of his death. Our small boat careened, a prey to every wind, when your new note sounded hesitant over the breakers, and our ears attuned to orchestral promise in Shannos grace, classically dressed for theatre and film, to rival Dvorak and Bartok. Off the Schleicholen, we heard the steady pulse of your bowron and the pitch of your harpsichord drawing us in, consoling. Fifty years on, no longer adrift, we steer our vessel to every port, secure with your afflatus, billowing our sails. On this morning's Sunday Miscellany, Walter Scott and the Oldest Person in History was by Dan Mulhall. Laneways by Barbara Scully. Men of Coulee by Catherine Foley. Horse-drawn Dublin was by Anne-Marie Durkin. Semi-detached musicians by Joe Carney. And Magilla Mar, My Gallant Lad, a poem for Sean O'Reilly by Declan Collinge. The music was The Sky Boat Song by The Corries. Shortcut by Brona Gallagher. Egon Bosa via Ghana by Cor Huli with Padre Home James and Don't Spare the Horses by Ambrose and his orchestra. Ombra Mai Fu sung by Cecilia Bartoli with Il Giardino Armonico conducted by Giovanni Antonini. And Real Vor Valle Ancala performed by Kyoltori Kulin which closed the second of two portraits of Sean the concerts presented recently by the National Concert Hall, the Arts Council and RTE to mark Sean O'Reilly's 50th anniversary. Highlights from the concerts will be broadcast on the Lyric Concert with Paul Herriot tonight at 7pm on Lyric FM.
And this morning at 11 on RTE Radio Nagelthikta, there will be a special commemorative mass live from Kulay with musical direction by Padra Oriada. You can watch it on Facebook Live. And you can listen back to the programme on the RTE player. Just search for Sunday Miscellany. Sunday Miscellany's broadcast coordinator is Willem McCartney and the producer is Sarah Binchy. You've been listening to the Sunday Miscellany podcast. For more from us, you can follow the programme on Facebook, Twitter, Spotify or Apple Podcasts. Just search for RTE Sunday Miscellany.